I'm Katrina Craigwell. And I'm Annelise Campbell. And welcome to Am I On You? This week, we are chatting about AI and technology and how we should be thinking about this new technology, what it means for people like us, Katrina and myself in the marketing industry, but just how we might be thinking about AI or how we can think about AI a little bit differently. Katrina, I know you and I have talked at length (laughs) about just the conversations that happen at large when there is new technology emerging. And I think over the past year, you could not get on the internet without seeing AI anywhere. It was, I would say it's kind of like omnipresent right now. Like everywhere I look, it is something with AI. I think we're in a place where we do need to hear from people that are experts who can help us just be a little bit more informed, but also I think take the pressure off a little bit because I think as marketers, people that are leading brands, leading teams, it can feel really overwhelming to figure out, okay, how do we use this new and cool technology? What do we do with it? How do we meet our customers' demands who want to use it? A lot of people are asking themselves a lot of questions. I think it's important to get more context, get more information, and get our hands dirty a little bit. Yeah, we have a really interesting guest who I've known for quite some time on the episode today, Noah Breyer, who has held many roles throughout his career. He's been a writer, a creative, a strategist. He co-founded a platform called Percolate back in the early 2010s, which I was a big user of along with the team at GE. Most recently, he's been working in the AI space and thinking of applications, experimenting, and bringing the community together, the marketing community, and really all kind of the cross-functional leaders that that community works with to figure out what's next, figure out what are the interesting uses, how do we think about the space, how to approach the space really smartly. And so it's always a pleasure to talk to Noah. He always has really interesting, intriguing things to say. It's like gets my brain working. So I think we're going to have a little geek out today. Yeah. You know, I love a geek out. Very excited to geek out with Noah. Noah Breyer is a seasoned marketing and technology professional with a career spanning over two decades. Noah began his career as a journalist, copywriter, and creative director at award-winning agencies like Naked Communications and The Barbarian Group. His entrepreneurial journey started in 2011 when he co-founded Percolate, the world's leading content marketing platform. Percolate partnered with global brands like Unilever, GE, and Anheuser-Busch and was backed by venture capital firms Sequoia, First Round Capital, and Lightspeed. In 2019, Seismic, the leading sales enablement platform, acquired Percolate. Currently, Noah runs Brand. We are so excited to have Noah Breyer with us today. Noah, you've done so many things. I've known you for probably a decade at this point, working with you and the team at Percolate. But I want to just start by asking you, you know, you've been behind the strategies and technologies that have powered the marketing community for many, many years in many, many ways. Can you tell us about your career and then the work that you're doing now in AI? Yeah, sure. I started out actually as a journalist for a very short period of time. I was writing for a magazine called American Demographics. And it was an amazing gig because I had one 2,500-word article to write a month, and that was it. It's like a job that no longer exists. And it only existed for about six months because they sold the magazine and we all lost our jobs. And I needed something else to do. And I had interviewed a bunch of different kinds of marketing people because I was covering media, technology, marketing. I reached out to someone who ran an agency and I applied for a copywriter job, even though I didn't know what a copywriter did. So I was a copywriter and a creative director, and then eventually became a strategist. And somewhere in there, I taught myself to write code. And in 2011, I started my first company. So 
I started Percolate. It was a marketing technology platform. It helped brands manage all their content. We sold that in 2019. And I've since then started a few more things and built different tools and a lot of experiments. And then over the last year, really, I've been just sort of obsessed with AI like everybody else. And what happened really was I was just building things and playing with things and writing a lot of code and sort of amazed at what could happen. And my whole story is that I built this fun little collabs tool. So I had an idea that was like, you know, as I played with uh, GPT-3 for the first time, and as I played with Dolly and the API came out, I was like, what could I build that could make something that could exist, but doesn't, and you could sort of do it infinitely. And I was like, collabs are sort of perfect for that. It rattled around in my head for a bit. And then one day I was having coffee with a friend of mine. He was like, you got to just build that thing and let people make collabs with AI. And so I built it and it kind of took off. And then I was giving an interview about it with Fast Company. And I just sort of blurted out that I was going to do a conference about brands and AI, which was something I had in my head because I'd been really disappointed by the conversation around all this stuff for a whole bunch of different reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. But that kind of led me to doing this thing. And so what started, I, I call it brand, B-R-X-N-D. I called it that because it was originally just this collabs thing. And uh, the X was for the collabs. And now I say the X is for the sort of intersection of marketing and AI. So I'm, I'm putting on events. I'm building a lot of experiments. I'm doing a lot of research. I'm working with a bunch of brands on sort of AI tools and strategies. And I'm just sort of playing and having fun, to be honest. I feel really lucky that I'm in this moment where I have some time to explore when there's this crazy new technology out there. And I'm just trying to be as hands-on as I can. My whole sort of thing has been just play and experiment and tinker. And so that's what I'm doing right now. So I'm sort of planning an event for another one. I did one in May in New York. I'm planning one for San Francisco for the fall. And I'm putting on a couple with brands and building a bunch of weird stuff and just having fun. I have known you to build platforms and tools. And I wanted to ask you what kind of pushed you to kind of build community first and quickly get to building a conference in this space. Well, so I've been actually building communities for a really long time. And I should say that not that the two are mutually exclusive. Yes, it kind of comes naturally. In 2005, I started this coffee meetup again on a whim with a guy named Pierce Fox, who runs a website called PSFK. And we had never met and we invited a bunch of people out for coffee and about 20 people showed up. We just put it on our blogs at that time. It became this sort of amazing phenomena where it eventually was in like 60 cities around the world and everybody would meet on the third Friday of the month and there's a big New York Times story about it. And it felt like this sort of moment in time where people weren't really meeting people from the internet yet in 2005, 2006. And for me, it was just this amazing sort of experiment in community building because I sort of went back after that first one where 15 people showed up and they were amazing. And many of them are still friends and that whole sort of experience has really changed my life in many ways. Like one of the people who came to that first one eventually introduced me to an agency I went on to work at. And at that agency, I met my wife. And so it's like, you know, really wild things happen. But I went back and I actually discovered, you know, on conferences. So they're governed by this, these ideas, they're called the laws of open space, I think is what they're called. Somebody came up with this. And I went back after that first one. And it basically said, like, whoever's there are the right people is one of the rules of unconferences. And, and it felt like very right. So 
anyway, since then, I've sort of been very focused on this, mostly because I like it. I just sort of find it naturally. I, I like to surround myself with people who I find interesting and are fun to talk to and can help me navigate the world. And so it's something I've just been doing a lot of my life. I run a newsletter now with a mutual friend of ours named Colin Nagy. And we have this amazing community of contributors who, if you write for the newsletter, you get into this sort of ultra exclusive Slack group. And that's become a sort of really vibrant community. Wait, sorry, pause. Name drop for the newsletter, please. Big fan. Oh, it's called Why Is This Interesting? Okay, everybody go subscribe. Yes. So yeah, when it came time to doing this brand stuff, I wanted to find other like-minded people who were also interested in this and not so focused on like the 16 tips for better chat GPT headlines or like, you know, when is this going to ruin our lives or whatever, who were, you know, they were interested in kind of exploring and experimenting and tinkering and intellectually curious and not out there trying to sell something. And so that felt like the very natural place to start. Those people ended up coming to the conference and they spoke at the conference and that all just has happened very naturally. I think, you know, for me, at least the sort of community building thing has always been, it only works if you do it from a real place. I'm just curious, exploring and meeting people who are also curious and, you know, I don't have any sort of real thing I'm after other than that. I think that makes it work. Yeah. I love that you mentioned kind of what I would call just all the chatter around AI. I think there's a lot of conversation, people on different sides of a fence of sorts. And so we'd love to talk to you about kind of what are the things that you've seen in AI that's really interesting to you. We can talk about in marketing and we can talk about just at large, but some of the things that you've seen that you've been like, wow, that's super interesting and a great use of AI. Not that many things. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, like my answers on this stuff are mostly really boring. Like I think the uses that are really amazing are not the ones that people want to sort of throw up on billboards or whatever. One of the folks who spoke at my conference, and when I heard about it, I was like, yes. It was an agency called Work & Co. who built a plugin for Figma that just could use AI to write better placeholder copy for like when you're designing a website. And it's like, that's not exciting at all in the sort of like the quote unquote, what's exciting, what's interesting AI stuff. Like it's not big and flashy, but as somebody who had a copywriting job, like nothing is worse in the entire world than writing placeholder copy, like writing anything that's just going to disappear. You know, it's never lorem ipsum, lorem ipsum. Exactly. Yeah. That kind of stuff is really where I find myself drawn more than the sort of flashy stuff. I mean, obviously a lot of the imagery and the stuff coming out of mid journey is like absolutely extraordinary. For me, most of the work I'm doing is honestly, and where I find it most interesting is stuff like I've used it a lot for web scraping, where you give it some text and you tell it to output in a CSV or something. That kind of stuff where it's doing things that are just totally terrible work, you know, and it's stuff that like I can't stand to do and it's hard to even find people to do them. And that's where I'm really amazed by it. And I'm really focused. I avoid a lot of the other <laughs> the other conversations and I'm much more focused on the really boring stuff. Like I think it's most interesting as this sort of translation layer. I think of it as like this sort of fuzzy interface where it can take text and transform it into code instructions or whatever, or vice versa. And it can do all of this stuff behind the scenes that was kind of impossible before because you didn't have that. And and that's what excites me and and that's where i spend my time you know and that's also why when i put the conference on i i was really focused on like 
I don't think this is a creative replacement. I think it's a accelerant because as somebody who works on a lot of creative projects, like that is the stuff that destroys you, right? Like that's the stuff that like takes all your energy away and <laughs> you avoid. And then you find yourself two days later and you haven't gotten to the thing you need to do because you're just avoiding that one terrible part of the project. And it's really good at that stuff, but it's not exciting in the way that I think people are overly focused right now. And I think that's a really good perspective because I think a lot of the conversations that we see dominating social are the, I would say melodramatic. That's what I'm going to use. <laughs> that's the word I'll use. Melodramatic uses, very iRobot end of times kind of conversation. I think it's important to hear from someone like you who has used it and tinkered and explored that there are really great uses that can help accelerate brands, accelerate teams, accelerate the things that get us really excited about work. So the next question I have for you is what kind of cross-functional team does it take to integrate AI into a brand's marketing strategy, execution, their plan? Like how should they be thinking about it? I know my agency friends are like, we're getting RFPs that have to do with AI all the time. And I'm like, I can't help you guys. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not the person, but I'd love your insight on how people can think about approaching that. I think we don't know, really. I mean, I know that's kind of the, the not so exciting answer. I'm working with a bunch of brands on that question, and I don't think anybody has the answer quite yet. I think everybody's trying to figure it out. My sort of best answer is to play. Like I think that what the very best thing that folks can do is encourage people in the organization to get their hands on it. My kind of whole thesis on what's going on right now is that this is a fundamentally counterintuitive technology in the like really fundamental sense of the word where it's it's like we have an intuition for what computers are good at and not good at and Almost everything computers are good at, this is bad at, and everything computers are bad at, this is good at, right? Like computers are really good at math and really bad at creative writing. There's all these things. And I think we're all just sort of at the beginning of that journey of figuring it out. And I think the way you figure things out is to play with them, right? Like I tried to find another analogy and I couldn't find one. It's like riding a bike. Like you don't learn to ride a bike by someone explaining to you how to ride a bike. You've learned to ride a bike by riding a bike, and then it's like riding a bike, right? I think that's kind of where we're at. So the key part of any team who is trying to integrate this in is just going to be people who are excited to sort of like get their hands on it. It fundamentally touches every part of the process in the organization. I worked with a brand about a month ago on a project where we were trying to identify sort of areas in the organization where it would touch. And it's anything. And it's just sort of listening through the process and finding those places. And, you know, there's lots of rules inside brands about what you can use and you can't use. So I think there's one very simple thing I, that seems to be pretty universal inside organizations now, which is focus on the input side, not the output side, because I think there's too many legal questions right now on the output side. And, and they're all very scared, especially at big brands, but for using it as part of the process. So an example was I met during that project with uh, somebody who was on the SEO team. One of the big parts of their job, they, they needed to do like sort of build content around a whole bunch of niche keywords, but identifying all the niche keywords was really hard because they were targeting this sort of very narrow set of people who didn't have a ton of time to talk to that customer set. And so using AI to help them identify the niche keywords, that's kind of perfect, right? It's this sort of input side. They need to still produce all the output, but it gives them the ability to sort of move a little faster. So I definitely don't have all the answers. I think 
I don't think anybody has all the answers. That's the other part of the whole melodramatic conversation, I think, is a lot of people promising answers. And to some extent, the more confidently anyone asserts what they know about AI right now, I think the less they probably understand it. If you listen to the folks who are in the middle of building it at, you know, Google or OpenAI, you know, they're not sure sort of all the directions is going to take. And so when I read these articles that are very confidently telling me how marketing is going to change or whatever, it's just like, okay, <laughs> that's how I tune it out. <laughs> I think that gives our listeners hope at the very least, <laughs> because I'm sure they are probably reading those articles like, am I still going to have a job in a year or so? So you guys can all take comfort in what Noah is saying, that maybe all of those things aren't definitively true as we're exploring this new technology. I love that SEO example because... Again, it's not about like racing to the flashiest thing that's going to get you the headlines. It's about what is the work in front of me and how can I use this tool? I mean, you used the word translation before, and I think about it as like a translator between me and the mountains of information around me that I want to make sense of. Any other examples just to like get our minds going about all of the opportunity that there is for us to find help for our work. Any other examples like that that have come up? Yeah, I mean, they're very nerdy. I'll warn you. I love them, please. Yeah, you're speaking to the right audience. <laughs> you know, another one is using it to help you get started building taxonomies. So often in our jobs, whatever your job, but often as a, a marketer, you need to figure out sort of like, how am I going to organize all of this information, right? Like I've got a bunch of, whether it's survey data or any kind of, you know, I was uh, actually just recently doing this with a project where I needed to take titles, right? And I needed to bucket them. One of the really amazing things you can do with ChatGPT as an example is give it a list of titles and say, hey, I want to build a taxonomy with no more than 10 categories to organize this set of titles, right? And that's such a job. We've all had to do some version of that at some point and it's not the most fun and it just sort of spits out and is it perfect? No, but like, does it get you a good amount of the way there? Absolutely. It's really amazing. They took it down, but one of the other things that I've seen that I think is really helpful is they took down the browser plugin for ChatGPT. I'm sure it'll come back soon, but it was really good for, you could tell it to go check your website and then read something of yours and tell you if it thought it was on brand or not. It's just like a nice little trick, right? Like, go read this stuff by me, by our brand, and then read this and tell me how well it matches and where I might be able to sort of make updates to make it sound more like that. So it's a lot of these sort of little bits and pieces. On the personal side, I use it a lot for just doing those sort of parts of my job that I hate doing. Like I, I had one recently where, you know, I wrote a proposal and then it needed to get turned into a consulting agreement. Do you rewrite it? What do you, and so I, I just sort of stuck the proposal in there and asked it to, and gave it another consulting agreement I had and asked it to sort of smash the two together. And then you read it, you go through it, adjust it. But, you know, I really feel just personally that, I mean, this has been amazing for me. I feel like I've been more productive and able to be more focused on the work I like to do than, at any time before. I mean, I've written so much code over the last <laughs> six, eight months. And it's specifically because I have access to these tools. And that's amazing for me because I love doing it. That's sort of, I'm able to be more productive. But what it really feels like is it feels like I have a team. Like I've totally changed the way I work in strange ways. I write more comments in my code so that I can be a better partner to GitHub Copilot because the context helps it write code for you. And so I'll add some more comments. And, and so it's all these sort of interesting pieces, but I, I'm just 
figuring it out like everybody else. I have played with it probably more than the average person, but I'm, I'm still just trying to find those same set. And so as far as a process, what I've been doing is just super simple when I've been working with brands is just, you know, you sit down with a bunch of people and you talk to them about what they do. And then you sort of identify those areas in the process where there are places like the SEO example, where it's like, okay, it's really hard to get to customers. Um, you know, it's a whole process, but you need to find these SEO keywords and that kind of stuff. It's pretty amazing. And, and you know, it's, again, I think a lot of people, especially inside large organizations are getting really tripped up right now on the the output because nobody knows what the future holds and nobody knows how it's going to work. But, you know, there's just so many pieces where you can use it to kind of be an assistant. And it's really helpful to have one of those when you don't. Yeah, totally. I was lucky enough to get to go to the conference in New York, which was such a joy. And I actually want to ask you to talk about two things that we were a part of their discussions we were part of. One is the conversation around IP and AI and the output and the sticky part and what does a brand have ownership of versus not if they've created something using AI? And then I also would love for you to talk about the ad Turing test, which was so much fun and what everyone's learning from that. Cool. Yeah, of course. So yeah, on the first one, we had a really, really amazing speaker who is, uh, she's the lead counsel for the National Music Publishers Association. And so they're deep in the middle of all of these questions. She's not a marketer, but she's somebody who is working on this stuff, but also has a lot of experience explaining legal concepts to people like myself who are not <laughs> deep in the middle. You know, my brief to her was, you're the only one in the room who has read the trademark office's memorandums on AI and copyright. So that's the sort of place you should start. I thought she said a bunch of really interesting things. So my understanding, um, mostly from the conversation that happened that day and from talking to her was that at a fundamental level, copyright can't be held by anyone but a human, right? So like that's the sort of most fundamental piece of the whole equation. There was a famous case, I don't know, probably five or 10 years ago, where a monkey took a photographer's camera and took a selfie. The monkey managed to take an amazing photo of themselves. The photographer then sued a bunch of folks who published the photo without his permission, without paying him. And it went to court and ultimately the court decided against the photographer, because whoever's holding the camera owns the copyright. No one but a human can own a copyright. So like, that's the most fundamental thing here. And I keep coming back to that story because I think it, it's sort of such a simple explanation of it. Something that is produced by a machine cannot own a copyright. So, you know, all the regular protections afforded to us when we produce things of, you know, as soon as you put this podcast out, you have the copyright on it. That's not true when you're a machine. And so the kind of regular, purely generative output of these machines, as far as I understand, has been, you know, ruled to be basically sort of non-copyrightable. Now, copyright is not the only protection that exists. And there's really interesting questions. I was actually talking to somebody who was a uh, rights holder recently, like, a you know, of some animated characters. And the question of, well, what if we produced a model that was trained on our characters and it could output scenes? We wouldn't hold the copyright, but nobody else can take advantage of the trademark, right? Because like we own the trademark to those characters. So it's not the only piece, but you know, it's definitely, it's blurry. I don't think anybody quite understands. And then the trademark office basically came out after that and said that there was a sort of level of adaptation that if you touched it as a human after it came out of the machine and you changed it enough 
that it, you know, you could then hold the copyright, right? Because it became a sort of human creation, but it's not totally clear what enough is, you know, and I think all of this stuff is going to come to a head. I'm obviously not a lawyer, so I'm sort of only reading all this from the outside and hearing from people who know a lot more than I do. But yeah, it's genuinely complicated. <laughs> At a fundamental level, I think there's a lot of people who think it's just going to sort of change, but it's not very clear to me how it will just change because this concept that humans have, only humans can own copyrights is pretty fundamental to the way the whole system works. So I, I'm not sure where that line is going to be. And, you know, I think there were some questions about like, well, is it human created because we prompted it? It's going to shake out. This technology is not just going to disappear. I'm sure some of these things are going to go to court. I'm sure some of them are going to court. That's the sort of output side. The other side is the input side, which is that all of these models, you know, what happens to get the model to be able to make images or music or words is that they're trained on lots of existing data, much of it copyrighted. And that's a whole other side of the legal equation. And so, you know, there are lawsuits ongoing against many of these model creators. The most sort of egregious <laughs> example, I think, is the Getty Images sued Stable Diffusion. And to show that it had clearly been trained on Getty Images, you can basically get it to output Getty Images watermark that's produced by the model. If you Google stable diffusion, get images, AI lawsuit, you'll see some of those images and it's, there's zero question <laughs> that's, and obviously Getty owns all the copyrights on all those. That's the other side of the equation. How are the people whose work this is going to get compensated for being used in the training models? And we're also uh, seeing some of this now in social media, right? I think that it's hard to tell sort of how much of it was really brought on by the AI stuff and how much was just a uh, talking point, but the whole sort of thing that happened with Reddit where they <laughs> changed the API uh, rules, communicated reasoning from the company was that it was partly to protect them from being used as a training set. And that's definitely true. You know, if you look at like Stack Overflow, and I just recently saw Stack Overflow is a, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it's a Q&A site for mostly for coding, you know, it was clearly used in training these models and the traffic for it has just dropped off the face of the earth. I see it in my own coding now. I don't go to Stack Overflow anymore. I have a whole bunch of other tools I use. And so there are a lot of questions on that side as well, I think. To me, the one I'm watching personally and, and curious the most about is Wikipedia because it's such a fundamental part of the internet and is very clearly a fundamental part of where these models were trained, what they were trained on. It's a huge, huge data set. But it also, like these models are, you don't need to go to Wikipedia in the same way when you can just kind of ask one of these things. So, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how all that side of it shakes out as well. I think it's going to be interesting to follow. And I can't imagine it gets resolved quickly just because it's like a real, real kind of hornet's nest. Oh, <laughs> total hornet's nest. I'm so intrigued by all these questions. My mind, as I'm listening to all of them, I'm like, well, what about this? What about that? And then my mind is a little bit stuck on the, is it human created when we're still talking about the insight inputs because I prompted it? And then, well, in the case of the monkey taking the photo, I mean, you could have trained the monkey to take the photo, but it was determined, right, that the monkey took the photo. And so, yeah, yeah. so now we've got to define the difference between monkey and machine. And we're getting ourselves into very hairy territory. Super interesting. It's going to be fun. And so to your second question, at the event, we did a ad Turing test. The Turing test is this sort of very famous 
it originally was a thought experiment from Alan Turing, basically said that, you know, one way we could tell if machines are intelligent is that we could put somebody in a room and then put a person in a machine in another room and have them communicate via typing. And if they can't tell the difference between the human and the machine, then the machine is intelligent. Many years ago, a friend of mine and I had this idea that it would be fun to do an ad Turing test. We originally had the idea way before uh, these models were capable of doing the things that they're capable of now. When I decided to put the event on, got back in touch with him, and we pulled back out the idea that we had, and we recruited a bunch of AI teams and a bunch of advertising students, and we had them all work off the same brief and produce ads that we then put in front of an esteemed jury of professionals from the marketing industry, which included yourself. We had them say whether they thought they were, each one was AI made or human made. So there were a total of 10 ads. Four of them were from AI teams, right? So they were teams who put together the AI ads. Um, there were a whole bunch of rules around it. And then six of them were from ad students who effectively had no rules, right? Like just make an ad however you want to make an ad. And the results were, I guess, I was pretty surprised, certainly from when we started the project, which was that, like, essentially, neither the professionals nor the sort of wider audience that we put it on at the end of the day as well could tell the difference. The rate was like 52% or something. It was essentially a coin flip. And we didn't have a horse in that particular race. What was interesting to me about it was when we started the project in December and we were trying to recruit AI teams, it seemed totally impossible that like they would be able to produce anything that could ever trick anyone. But the difference between what was available in December and what was available in April was pretty extraordinary. All of the AI teams ended up using technologies that were not available in December originally. That was very interesting part of it. You know, I'd say another interesting thing was we worked with a company called System One who does creative testing and they did creative testing on all the ads for us just to see how they performed. And there was basically a whole distribution and the AI ads on average performed kind of in the middle of the pack amongst everybody. But what was interesting is that they performed on average pretty far above the average U.S. print ad in the category of that system. And System 1 sees many tens of thousands of ads. So, you know, it's like a pretty robust data set. Having spent a lot of time in my career working with big brands with huge budgets, I think we become used to and think of advertising as this sort of like high production, high quality thing. But there's a lot of people who make ads, right? And it's a very, very... <laughs> big distribution of quality and, and creativity. And the other thing I thought was really interesting, so the top ad from that creative testing was, it was actually a disqualified ad officially because the rules very clearly stated that like no human intervention was allowed by the AI team. So you weren't allowed to like go back in and edit things and move things around. One team submitted two ads. One of them followed the rules and the other one, they had the AI produced the different pieces. So it wrote the copy, it created the images, it did these things, but then they did the layout at the end. And that was the best performing ad. And that was kind of interesting. Like it didn't satisfy the letter of the law, but it did perform really well. And, and I think particularly in this sort of question we were just talking about around the law, right? Like IP and copyright, presumably that one would be the most defensible where they put it together at the end. My other big takeaway from it was just the people who were the AI teams 
were very experienced <laughs> professionals. Like these were people with uh, 20, 30, 40 years combined experience in the industry who are utilizing these tools. And that for me is very resonant. They're not just sort of like magically making you great at things, you know, you would never be great at, but like when you know the parts you're good at and not good at, and you know the rules around it and you know how to do the different pieces, and then you can utilize these things in ways to automate the process that you already have, you know, and that's fundamentally what they did. That's a, a really sort of rich area to explore. Again, in that way, that's why I see it as a accelerant, not a replacement. It's like, you know, I think these are most powerful when you put them in the hands of people like that. It was fun. We're going to do it again, I think. Um, that's the plan. I kind of want to make it an ongoing thing, like a benchmark. I'm not rooting for <laughs> the humans or the AI in this. I'm just interested to see how the technology evolves. There's a lot of image models, as an example, are, are still not very good at producing text that isn't terribly misspelled <laughs> and is sensible and you know that will eventually change and all these pieces and so being able to track that over the time i think it'll be fun everybody can take it as well it's at turing t-u-r-i-n-g dot b-r-x-n-d dot a-i so you can go try your hand out at the test there's uh 10 i'm gonna do it as soon as we're done recording i'm gonna go do it <laughs> you get 30 <laughs> seconds per ad you gotta go for it <laughs> Well, Noah, this has been such an incredible conversation. It's clear that you have a rich and deep, but also a curious understanding towards AI. And I think that's something that when we have those conversations around it, most people aren't coming from a place of curiosity. They're coming from a place in hard, fast rules. This is my opinion. So it's been really refreshing to see how you've played in the space, tinkered in the space, and been able to have some fun with something that most people are finding a little bit daunting right now. So to wrap us up, we close all of our episodes with this. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think the best piece of advice I've ever received is not to take advice. <laughs> There's a really amazing piece that I will have to find the link for and send you, but it was in the Point magazine and it's called On Advice and it basically argues against taking advice. The reason for it is that most of the time when people are giving you advice, they're telling you what they did in a situation that sounds sort of vaguely similar to yours, but that's usually actually not very helpful at all because people's situations are so fundamentally different. And so it's much better to try to understand how people made decisions, why they made the decisions they made, not sort of try to follow the exact pattern that they followed. I don't know. That's stuck in my head forever is like trying to focus on the other parts of advice. It's not to say that people don't have lots of kind of useful knowledge about the way the world works and lots of useful experience. But a lot of the time when we ask for it, we get like, oh, that sounds like a thing that happened to me 12 years ago. And here's what I did when that happened to me. And it's like every part of that scenario can be fundamentally different. So it was a really amazing article. It's something I send around a lot to people. It's really stuck with me. Can I just say that sounds a little bit, once again, like focus on the input and the process, not the output. Yeah, it was... <laughs> yeah. It's a theme. It's a theme. <laughs> Noah, sure. before we let you go, will you just share you're doing so many things. So there's, why is this interesting newsletter? I know you've got an AI newsletter, the conference is coming up. Will you just share what's coming up next that everyone can follow along? Why is this interesting comes out every day. You can just Google, why is this interesting? Or it's why is this interesting.substack.com. 
I have a newsletter and conferences. Everything is at brxnd.ai. I call it brand, not Brandex or Brixend or any of those other things. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of the best way to keep track of things. And if you're doing interesting stuff in the space, I'd love to hear from you. You know, I'm putting on events and, and I'm just generally interested in people who are genuinely interested in exploring. Well, thank you so much, Noah. It was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It is really refreshing when there are new emerging technologies that feel really daunting and someone who is clearly as knowledgeable and well-versed in it can make it just seem a little less scary because that's how I feel coming out of that conversation <laughs> with Noah is, yeah, this is going to be fine. It's not going to be iRobot end of times. <laughs> it actually could probably help a lot of people, a lot of teams. And I think his point about it's an accelerant, not a replacement, is something that is really sticking with me coming out of that episode. And I think that's the narrative that we should probably be more focused on. Obviously, you know, we want to be safe. We want our brands to be protected. We want to talk about the legalities and all of those things. If we as a collective could shift our mindset to more of an accelerant versus a replacement, I think people would be enticed to explore and tinker and get curious and play and might be really surprised with the outcomes that they stumble upon. And I think that's something that's really exciting. We go through this with any new technology. It's like we gravitate towards the thing that gets the headline and then either it scares us or we want to make news and make the thing that gets the headline. And really the biggest opportunity is to take a step back and think about our entire workflows and how can any given technology help accelerate those workflows. At one point, Noah was talking about the work that just takes your energy away that you have to do, right? But that is taking you away from spending time on the things that you were meant to be doing or can bring even more value. So like start there. So it was really great, very grounded perspective on how to think about the opportunity, which I loved. Yeah, I think one of my favorite uses that personally with AI is we're doing a values and mission exercise at CFG. And I was planning out the meeting, how the meeting was going to go, blah, 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 blah. I use ChatGPT to just give me question inputs. Like I wanted prompts. Like, okay, can you give me some questions that I can use in a brainstorm to help people get their ideas out of their head and onto paper? And no, ChatGPT didn't come up with our mission and values or what our changes were going to be, but it helped get people organized. And like, that's the part of my job that I hate doing. It also made my skincare routine for me because I have a lot of active ingredients in my skincare routine. So I don't know what doesn't work with what, or if I use vitamin C the same day that I use retinol, if it's going to whatever. So I'm like, okay, just tell me what days I should use what so that my skin stays nice. And it did that for me. And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> like, this is super useful. Wait, I always forget whether I'm supposed to use vitamin C in the morning or the evening. Yeah. So I literally gave it my entire, everything that was in my skincare cabinet. And I was like, that's brilliant. Can you make an AM and PM routine, keeping in mind active ingredients in these products and make sure that they don't interact or interfere with one another? And like, it gave me the whole thing. And I was like, I think this is the actual definition of work smarter, not harder. I love it. Well, <laughs> if you're interested in this space, Noah shared a lot of resources between his newsletter, the Brand AI conference series. Again, I went to the one in New York and there was so much. It was a great agenda, great information, really thorough and really interesting. And be a user. We always say that, right? In our space, any new thing, new platform, new technology, be a user first. 
it is just infinitely harder to make impact when you're kind of looking at things from the sidelines. So have fun. As always, thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, follow along on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any feedback, recommendations, thoughts, anything that you want to share with the MIM Mute team, you can always reach us at mimmute at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next episode.